we realized that we had a tool in international justice to bring to book tyrants and torturers who seemed out of the reach of justice. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Reed Brody, is a veteran war crimes prosecutor and author of the new book, To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hassan Habre. Hassan Habre was the brutal dictator of Chad from 1982 to 1990, when he was ousted in a coup and fled to Senegal. The book tells the story of Reed Brody's years-long obsession to bring Habre to justice and his partnerships with African lawyers and victims' rights advocates to that end. We kick off discussing the abuses of the Abre regime and the successful legal strategy that resulted in his conviction. We then take a step back to discuss the lessons learned from this successful trial that might be applied to other abusive leaders elsewhere. And just one thing before we start, if you are a regular listener to this show, please become a premium subscriber. There are a few ways you can do so. If you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts, you can become a premium subscriber and unlock access to many, many bonus episodes with a few taps of your thumb. Or you can visit patreon.com slash global dispatches to become a premium subscriber. You'll unlock bonus episodes for yourself and also help us at the show. Keep on keeping on. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Reed Brody, author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hassan Habre. Can you remind, explain to listeners who Hassan Habre was? So Hassan Habre was the dictator of Chad from 1982 to 1990. He was ushered into power by Ronald Reagan, who saw him as a bulwark against Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, who had territorial designs on Chad. He's accused, in fact, ultimately convicted 
of thousands of political killings and systematic torture. He was overthrown in 1990 by Idris Deby, who went on to rule Chad for 30 more years, and he fled to Senegal. That's where he was living in luxury until justice caught up to him. Could you just explain or describe some of the crimes that he was eventually convicted of? This was an era of many dictators around the world. What made Isan Habre particularly cruel and vicious as the leader of Chad? You know, Chad is a mosaic of ethnic groups. And when he came to power, he really didn't trust anybody other than people in his very small Goran desert clan, really. And successively, he launched waves of ethnic cleansing against different ethnic groups when he perceived that their leaders were breaking away from him. And so in 1984, he launched what was known as Black September in the south of Chad, where first he went after the elites, but then ended up destroying whole villages. In 1987, he went after the Hajarai ethnic group in the same fashion, first going against leaders and then burning down and destroying villages in the center of Chad. And in 1989, after Idris Deby and the Zahawas tried a coup d'etat against him, he took his revenge out on the whole Zahawa ethnic group and the prisons filled up with Zahawas and many were killed. He also engaged in sexual slavery, something that we learned afterwards. He sent women to serve as sexual slaves in his army. Rape was very common in Habre's prisons. The files of Hissen Habre's political police, the DDS, which we were lucky enough to stumble on in our investigations, give the name of 1,208 people who died or were killed in detention, as well as over 10,000 people who were in his jails. And in those documents alone, Habre received documents about over 900 prisoners that he was informed about. And he really created a police state, the DDS, Directorate of Documentation and Security was his personal Gestapo. So your book details, you know, a self-described obsession with bringing Habre to justice. Where did you first come to this obsession? How did you become so seized with this case? Well, I had worked on the case of Augusto Pinochet the Chilean dictator who was arrested in London in October 1998 on a warrant from a Spanish judge, Baltazar Garzón, for crimes allegedly committed 25 years earlier in Chile. And this arrest took place only a few months after the Rome conference that had established the International Criminal Court. And when Pinochet was arrested, he challenged his arrest before the British House of Lords. He said, I'm a former head of state. You can't arrest me. You can't extradite me. And I went to London for Human Rights Watch to work on the case. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty were 
admitted as interveners in the case. And I ended up staying there for the better part of six months. And when the House of Lords ruled that Pinochet could be, in fact, arrested anywhere in the world on the basis of universal jurisdiction, despite his status as a former head of state, we realized that we had a tool in international justice to bring to book tyrants and torturers who seemed out of the reach of justice. And this was a champagne moment for the human rights movement, the decision on Pinochet. I mean, for me personally, I mean, I, I was always used to being right and losing. And here in the case of Augusto Pinochet, we had actually won a case against the iconic Latin American dictator with the sunglasses. And we started thinking, who's next? And I was approached by a Chadian activist, Delphine Jaib, who said, you know, we have somebody who's committed more crimes than Pinochet. And what particularly interested me about Hissen Habre was that he was in exile, not in Europe, but in Senegal. And I felt that if we could get an African country to prosecute African crimes, this would really be you know, pushing the envelope and making justice more universal. And ultimately, we had to put together a team with people from Chad, where the crimes took place, where the victims were, together with Senegal, where Hissen Habre was. We created this transnational team. And, you know, you get started on something like this. And also, at a certain point, you know, I became very close to many of the victims who were fighting for justice. And at that point, I felt like I could never give up. So the legal strategy. So the legal sort of rubric in which Pinochet was placed in detention in the United Kingdom, though he was later released on like health grounds and allowed to go back to, to Chile, but was a Spanish judge claiming universal jurisdiction. Since Prabre was in Senegal, like does the Senegalese legal code assume universal jurisdiction for human rights abuses as well? We thought it did. <laughs> Senegal said it did, but because of political interference. So the reason the case took, because we filed the first case in 2000 and the trial began in 2015. And what happened is Senegal has a law that had rules on its books for universal jurisdiction. But the Senegalese Supreme Court, after blatant political interference by Senegal's president, said, no, we don't. Basically, even though we've ratified these treaties, our domestic law has not properly incorporated them. And so you cannot prosecute somebody in Senegal for crimes that took place outside of Senegal. And that began this long, what everybody calls the legal and political soap opera of the Hissen Habre case. Because when Senegal refused to prosecute, we went to Belgium. We filed cases in Belgium, which had an even bigger universal jurisdiction law that didn't require even the presence of the defendant. Belgium investigated the case for several years. Belgium requested Habre's extradition. Senegal refused turned to the African Union. The African Union said to Senegal, Senegal, you have to prosecute. You have an international obligation. Senegal agreed, but then they didn't move forward. Then Belgium took Senegal to the International Court of Justice that ruled unanimously 
that Senegal had an obligation to prosecute Habre without further delay unless it extradited him. That coincided with a new president coming in in Senegal, a president that we had cultivated, as we had cultivated pretty much every politician in Senegal. The victims over this 15-year period were continuously going to Senegal and going around the world building support. Senegal amended its laws to allow for extraterritorial prosecution and entered in actually to, it's a longer story, I'm, I'm shortening this story, believe it or not. It's told in riveting prose in your books, though. <laughs> Thank you. You know, this was a 15-year slog, but ultimately Senegal and the African Union agreed on, on what's called a hybrid tribunal, which had mostly sent Senegalese elements, but some African Union elements as well to prosecute Habre. And that prosecution began in 2015, and he was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. In all this time, Habre was living in Senegal in like palatial circumstances until he was eventually arrested, right? That's right. Before he left Chad, he emptied out the treasury, basically. As Idris Deby's troops were approaching, and the U.S. was trying to send in fighters and weapons and stuff to defend the capital, Habre was busy getting money out of the country. And he took that money with him to Senegal. And he used that money not only to live very well, but to buy protection from political, religious, cultural leaders in Senegal. So as you just noted, this was a multi-year legal campaign and legal strategy to eventually bring Habre to justice before this kind of hybrid court between the African Union and Senegal, based in Senegal. During that time, how did you and your team design a compatible political strategy? Or how important was it that you know, you not be at the center of this, but rather victims of Habre's torture and abuses, the center of this question. Yeah, that's a really important point. You know, I'm telling the story and the press in the very beginning, because of the Pinochet case and this case and some other cases I worked on was labeling me a dictator hunter. But, you know, nobody, particularly in Senegal, is going to go out of their way to prosecute another African head of state because some lawyer from New York wants to do that. I mean, we realized very early on, both for internal consistency reasons as well as for external political reasons, that the victims had to be the face of this. I mean, Sule, the iconic leader of the Victims Association, Suleiman Gengeng, who, as people were dying around him, in Habre's prisons took an oath that if he ever got out, he would fight for justice. And he was the charismatic person who brought the victims together. And he became very, very well known in Africa. You know, everywhere, this was a French speaking case and, you know, Radio France Internationale, which is like the equivalent of the BBC, Jeune Afrique, which is like the equivalent of the Time Magazine or The Economist for Africa. They constantly had Suleiman, Jacqueline Mudena, the victim's Chadian lawyer, who was almost killed in an assassination attempt by one of Habre's accomplices, who she was also prosecuting back in Chad. 
and who prosecuted the case, who argued the cases with shrapnel still in her leg. Clema Abayfuta, the so-called grave digger, who was forced, one of his prison jobs was to bury fellow inmates in the what later became known as the Plain of the Dead outside of Jemena. I mean, these people and others became really well-known in Africa, and they were constant figures in Senegal talking about, you know, what had happened. And, you know, the fact that these figures were what was driving the case with your help and, and, and your support and sometimes your direction helped avoid, like, the white savior thing. Absolutely. I mean, Habre, of course, picked on me. I mean, he called and, you know, he, he treated these, he said these other people are just Reed Brody's mascots and lackeys and things like that. But, you know, it's hard to do that when you've got people like Suleiman. I mean, it's very hard to call Suleiman Gang Gang an imperialist, although they did that too. They said they were my lackeys and my pets and things like that. But, you know, it was very important to show that the plaintiffs were African, the lawyers were African. One of the great heroes of of this was a a Senegalese merchant, very similar to the kind of Senegalese people you see on street corners selling their wares, who had been in Habre's jails, you know, who had gotten out. And he devoted his life to this case in Senegal. And he spoke in Wolof. And every meeting we had with any Senegalese official, Abdurrahman was there, telling, you know, what these people are saying, I live this, I want justice. It put the case on an entirely different footing. And it's something I feel that international justice institutions like the ICC don't take advantage of, the role and the dynamism of victims and how they can attract sympathies. You know, I tell the story in the book, when the Belgian law on universal jurisdiction, on which our case hung for many years, was being repealed because It was great when it was being used against Africans, but when cases were filed against Ariel Sharon of Israel and George Bush Sr. of the U.S., Donald Rumsfeld came to Belgium and said, you know, if NATO leaders cannot come to Brussels without worrying about being arrested, we're going to have to move NATO out of Belgium. And the law fell like a house of cards, but we were able to save the Habre case, because Suleiman made personal appeals to Belgian politicians. He looked them in the eye. He he told his story about his oath he took in prison and coming out of jail and fighting for justice. And Senegal had refused, but now Belgium, he thought, had sent a judge and was saving them. And now he said, you're telling us because of Donald Rumsfeld, I can't have justice, you know, and they, no, Mr. Gang Gang, you know, we'll, 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 and they figured out a way to save the Chad case, even as the law was restricted. So is therefore one of the key lessons you drew from the Habre case that putting victims at the center of efforts to hold dictators to account is just likely to receive better outcomes And if so, around the world today, are there examples of that process and action in which victims are organizing and are campaigning and are indeed leading prosecutions against their former abusers who happen to be heads of state? Not only do you have a better chance of winning, but the case looks different. You know, I mean, we saw in the early cases at the ICC 
the ICC going into a country like the Congo, where millions of people have been killed, and focusing on you know a warlord who used child soldiers. Totally disappointing to civil society. In this case, not only were the victims attracting attention, they were saying, no, we want to make sure that any trial of Hiss and Habre includes the Sarah, that includes the Kim, it includes the Zahawas, it includes the Hadra. No shortcuts here. And that's really very important. But just as Delphine and the Chadians came to me after Pinochet and said, we want to do what the Chadians did, a lot of people, particularly in Africa, we want to do what Habre's victims did. And, and in Gambia, where I'm advising these days, you have very active victims who are fighting, who are leading the fight for justice against the former president, Yaya Jame. But also a lot of the cases around the world that we see based on universal jurisdiction, cases against Liberian warlords in France, in Switzerland, cases against Syrians, a lot of NGOs and activists and victims have been working on universal jurisdiction case, not necessarily only against former heads of state. There are not that many being prosecuted, but against mid-level people, against torturers, against rebel warlords. Also, they know the territory. They know the terrain. Working in the Habre case with victims, like having hundreds of investigators working with you. They're a force multiplier. We did workshops with victims explaining the legal aspects of the case, explaining the factual action, and they were just like having dozens of investigators. So if putting victims at the center of these efforts is one key lesson that you've drawn from the Habre case for how to catch a dictator, are there other key lessons that you think are perhaps nearly as important? Well, one thing I would say really important is look for sexual violence because it's always there. You know, we worked on this case for 15 years. It wasn't until the 14th year when women saw that Houston Habre was going to trial that they began to tell us their stories of sexual violence. And Habre was convicted of using sexual slavery. He was also a woman testified at the trial and the court believed her that Hissen Habre raped her personally four times. And in the aftermath of the trial, we say, how could we have not, even though we had women interviewing women, how did we let this go for so long? And Patricia Sellers, a, a leading women's rights expert, said, you know, you just have to go and look for it. And so when I started working in Gambia, it was the first thing we looked for. And I remember reading an article on the front page of the New York Times about Yaya Jameh sort of personally sexually assaulting, raping women, including like a Gambian beauty pageant winner. Tufa Jallo. So as soon as we started looking at it, not only, did, as you say, not only did we see, not only in general was there sexual violence going on, but Yaya Jameh, the president, had a whole state-sponsored system to get him women. And he personally abused and raped women. And one of the people who agreed to testify, who was happy to do it, was a former pageant winner, Tufa Jallo, a very dynamic woman. And so, you know, we led with that. And it's colored everything that's gone on in the Gambia since then. There was Me Too movement, and everybody talks about the sexual violence that took place under Yaya Jammeh. Are there any other 
lessons that you have drawn from the Habre effort and, and the ongoing Jame effort that you think might be particularly applicable in other contexts? Well, the use of hybrid courts. And, and just explain what you mean by that. These presumably are courts that operate under a mix of local and international law and are presided over by a mixture of like local and international jurists? Exactly. I mean, there's an endless spectrum from 95% national to 95% international. In the Habre case, it was almost all national. But through the artifice of hybridization, you can basically write the rules and purpose build a tribunal as long as you have jurisdiction over the defendant, as long as you have fair trial. You can write the rules. So in Senegal, for instance, they don't have television in the courts. The rules of this court had television. We wanted to bring in Habre's insiders to testify before the court, but they could be arrested if they did that because they participated in torture. You put into the rules protection of witnesses. And in Gambia right now, for instance, Yaya Jami is in exile in Equatorial Guinea. The Truth Commission in Gambia has said he should be prosecuted. People feel like it's might be very dangerous for him to come back to the Gambia for the country. Also, that maybe Equatorial Guinea, which is a richer country than Gambia, might not agree. So Gambia is talking with ECOWAS, the West African states, about creating a hybrid court that would be an African tribunal that give it more political weight and that could hold trials out for maybe the lower people in Gambia, but for Yaya Jami in another West African country. You can purpose build something. I mean, we're seeing around the world, whether it's Kosovo, Central African Republic, Cambodia, previously Sierra Leone, a lot of multiples of different kind of hybrid courts that are providing justice in a way that is much less expensive. I mean, the Hisana, the International Criminal Court. Uh, well, I was going to say your your endorsement of like multiple hybrid courts around the world to try individual cases seems implicitly a critique of the International Criminal Court, which ostensibly was created to do that, but is not seemingly as effective. Well, in 20 years and at a cost of almost $2 billion, the ICC has not sustained the atrocity conviction of one single state official at any level of the state anywhere in the world. Five people have been convicted. All are African rebels. Not one state official. The Habre court cost $10 million. In international justice terms, it's not a lot of money. You know, other courts have cost more. Sierra Leone cost $300 million. I think there's a design flaw in the ICC which is its distance, its inability to do hand-to-hand combat, really, with state officials and states that don't want the ICC there. But I think we're seeing a lot of justice. I mean, there are over 100 universal jurisdiction cases going on forward at the moment. You've got hybrid courts in at least eight or nine different countries. There's a lot of justice happening in the world. It's just not happening at the ICC. Well, Reed, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. And the book really is a valuable read. I recommend it. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>